Good morning. Man, I'm sweating. Uh, it's been fun celebrating uh, with you already this morning. Philippians 4, 4 through 8. If you have a Bible or you can scan the QR code, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Thanks for being here this morning in person, worshiping with us, those joining us online, those in traditions and in kindred. It's fun to worship in different places, but yet as one church. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got ushers that are coming forward. Uh, you can borrow one this morning, Philippians 4, 4 through 8, here in just a couple of minutes. You know, whether it's in the heart, whether it's in the home, whether it's at work, or whether it's even in church, turmoil is a familiar word. A different word that might be used, or you might be more familiar with, uh, is the word drama. And today, the name of God that we're gonna be looking at is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're looking at the names of God. We've looked at Jehovah, the great I am, and that's what he told Moses when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell him the great I am. We've looked at Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jehovah Rapha last week, the God who heals. The name that we're looking at this morning, Jehovah Shalom, is introduced to us in Judges chapter six. You don't need to turn there, but I wanna walk you through um, where this name comes from as we look to Philippians four here in just a minute. In Judges 6.1, it says this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. The Israelites, God's chosen people, his children that had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, rebelled against God, and the consequence of their rebellion was enslavement to that which they were supposed to hold in slavery. They had rebelled against God, did evil in his sight, so God allowed the enemy of his people to win instead of his own children. Get this. All of this took place in the promised land. What can we learn from this? You can be in the promised land and be out of the will of God. Translate, you can be living in the promise of salvation, having surrendered your life to Christ, yet living outside of his will. You'll be faced with loss and defeat instead of victory and peace. There is no peace outside of God's plan and outside of his will. The Midianites, enemies of God, had his people, uh, were allowed by God to hold his people hostage for seven years. Seven years they dealt with defeat. If you were to continue reading on in this passage, you would learn that it became so bad that the people, his children, literally had to run for the caves to find protection, to hide from the Midianites who were destroying all of their property. They came like locusts, it said, so many that they couldn't even count. And an angel appeared to Gideon, next man up, right? Gideon, in verse 12, and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love the exchange that follows in chapter six between God and Gideon. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love this. I love how Gideon responds to this in verse 15. Pardon me, Lord. That's what he said. Gideon replied, but, but how can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. I absolutely love how God will use a person or a group of people who lack self-sufficiency. Then Gideon asked for a sign. He said, I just need to know this is of you, God. And he asked for a sign, and he got his convincing sign, and now he knew that it was the Lord. And then the Lord said to him in verse 23, this is where it all starts, peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. I love that phrase. Maybe you have children or maybe you've experienced this in your own life where like, I don't know if I can do that. I'm scared. I don't want to do it. And maybe you've asked this question or somebody's asked this question of you or you've pondered this question. What's the worst thing that could happen, right? You're not going to die. Peace. He says to him, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. And then verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. It's more than 200 years since Jehovah had revealed himself to his people. And by this time, the land had been conquered and it had been divided amongst the tribes. There was no central government. There was no central worship that was taking place. It was a period in which every man did what was right in his own eyes. That may sound familiar to you. I think that we're experiencing some of that today. After Joshua died, Israel began to forget Jehovah, their God. And they turned to all of the other gods of the people that surrounded them. They were no longer mindful of him as Jehovah, the great I am. They had forgotten him to be Jehovah, the one that had provided for them. It had slipped their mind about Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Israel's faith in Jehovah was trampled by imitating the culture around them. They had forgotten God. They found themselves in a wash, rinse, repeat cycle over and over again, this idea of rebellion, repentance, restoration. I have found myself in that same cycle. In this particular cycle, Gideon accepted the promise from God and built this altar called Jehovah Shalom in confidence and anticipation of victory and peace. Now with Jehovah Shalom in mind, let's fast forward to the New Testament. We learn from Philippians chapter four, verses four through eight today that Christ, who is the fulfillment of Jehovah Shalom, is inviting us to a life of peace. This will be good for me because sometimes I lack peace. Sometimes I find myself not very content in my attitude. And my attitude is anything but rejoicing. I can also find myself consumed with anxiousness at times about the unknown and, and all the what ifs of life. Can you relate? If you're following along in the outline, the first thing I wanna point out is attitude and peace and it's found in the first couple of verses 
And Philippians 4 says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. I I would encourage anyone uh, in this room, if you struggle with anxiety or worry or fear or feeling overwhelmed, I mean, this is for you. Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Paul says rejoice and and, and then says, in case you you didn't hear me the first time, I'll, I'll say it again, rejoice. It's important to note that all the while Paul as he's writing this letter, who's telling the people, his readers, to rejoice, and he says again, I'll rejoice, all the while he's sitting in prison. He's in prison. Telling others to rejoice. It's a great reminder for us that our inner attitude does not have to reflect our outward circumstances. Paul's attitude teaches us something very important. He knew that no matter what happened to him, Jesus was always with him. Keep in mind that Paul would often face people who resisted and who were against him. He stared death in the face and he frequently, it was not uncommon, he found himself in difficult circumstances over and over again. His life was was far from troublesome. To me, this gives credibility to what he's saying here in the first couple of verses when he says, rejoice. If you're sitting in prison and you're writing a letter to a church or to friends or to family, is that what would come to your mind? Rejoice. Paul was able to allow what he knew to be true to bring an inner calm to an outward storm. And as he looked out to the unknowns and all the what ifs of life, he lived fearless and full of peace. I'm intrigued by this. Are you? He he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That was the resolve that Paul had. That's why he had this, this inner peace. He knew that the life that he lived was no longer about him. He was now found in Christ. And the first thing that can affect how much we experience peace in this life is our attitude. Has anyone ever said to you, or have you ever said to someone else, check your attitude? Of course. That's what Paul is saying here in verse four. Rejoice, he says. Check your attitude. Is the truth of who you are in Christ affecting your outward self, or is your outward self affecting your inward self? What's driving what? And he goes on to say, not only have inner joy, but also let your gentleness be evident to all. It's an interesting uh, phrase that he uses here. The idea here is that while we may not at times have joy, it isn't always noticeable even when we do have it. And so he continues on encouraging us to be gentle because gentleness is, is visible, it's, it's evident. The word gentleness means reasonable or fair-minded or charitable. It's the idea of yielding one's own rights to show consideration for others. And he's saying, hey, uh, the joy, it may not always be evident, but if you're, if you're gentle, it's an outward expression of that, and people will notice that. 
A gentle spirit allows for the ability to disarm aggression and and frustration without having to compromise the situation. We have joy and exercise gentleness because our Lord is near, he says. He will return. Paul always kept in mind the return of Christ and that's what motivated the way that he lived. That's what motivated the way that he conducted himself. He always knew in his head, he always knew in his mind, Jesus is gonna return. That was his hope, that was what he was clinging to. But I would even go a step further and say, yes, Jesus is gonna return, but Jesus is also near right now. Through the Holy Spirit, he is near. Attitude and peace. Anxiety and peace, verse six. It begins like this. Do not be anxious about anything. Some translations say be anxious about nothing. The word anxiety means to be concerned, fret, undue concern, and Paul begins with a direct command, do not be anxious about anything. In other words, do not react to what you see or don't react to what you think you see. It's not the whole picture here. And and, and what's so big that you have convinced yourself that God can't handle it? Do you have those things in your life? Do you have something in your life right now that you can think of like, like I, I, it, maybe it's not that big, but you've made it that big and you're like, I don't think God can handle this. The Greek word for anxious means to be pulled apart in different directions. It's the idea that our hopes are pulling us in one direction and our fear is pulling us in another direction. And we literally feel like we're being pulled apart. That's the idea behind worry and anxiety. Hope is pulling us one way, fear is pulling us another way. The old English root from which we get the word worry means to strangle. People have said to me, the best way I can describe anxiety is like I'm being suffocated. I've witnessed it firsthand. Not personally, but I've seen it. People will say, I feel like I'm being strangled and I can't breathe. George MacDonald said, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It's when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than I can bear. And Paul addresses anxiety and worry because it can leave us in in such a a tremendous negative effect on us, robbing us of the peace of Christ that we're talking about this morning. It has physical effects. And you know this, if you you struggle with anxiety or worry or or fret or fear, you know this, or maybe you know somebody in your life and you've seen it, headaches or body aches or it messes with the stomach and and our sleep patterns and, and our fatigue and loss of appetite, muscle tension. Uh, it has behavioral effects. People look for ways to deal with anxiety through sleep or drugs or alcohol, um, just through denial. I remember at my last church um, meeting this guy and this family started coming to our church and, and little by little it was revealed that he had an increasing drinking problem and, and uh, little by little it came out that um, what he was doing, he had such anxiety that he literally every night would drink and get drunk just to use that as a cover, as a Band-Aid. It has spiritual effects. No time to pray. We can't concentrate. 
We become impatient. What causes anxiety? Well, one idea is limitations. We are limited in what we know and we're limited in what we can do. We can only see what is in front of us right this very second. We can't see one second into the future. We are limited by time as much as we think we know what the future holds. We know nothing to be absolute. There's a young lady named Josephine, 28 years old. She was killed in a head-on collision about 10 days ago. And last night we had the visitation here in the FLC. And it was amazing to me to watch one after another stand up, and especially these, these younger um, teens, upper teens, young adults would stand up and they would challenge the rest of the people there to say, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And it was a great reminder that Josephine didn't know that her life was gonna end that day. We know nothing. There are no absolutes. And while we are finite, the God of the universe is infinite. He is, he is omniscient, he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He knows every detail of our future. He knows every decision, every word, every thought. He is the answer to suffoc the suffocating weight of anxiety and worry and fret. Some have said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. And only an infinite God who is omniscient and omnipotent can be trusted and relied upon for a peace that calms a troubled and anxious heart. I'm somewhat of a routine person. Anybody else here? Kind of a routine person? Yeah? Or look at the person next to you if you think that they're like stuck in a routine. Often when I'm driving to the office, I see the same people walking down the same sidewalk at the same time of day, and I think, what a boring life. You walk the same sidewalk, same time of day, every day, going the same direction, and then it dawns on me. I would only see them because I'm driving down the same street at the same time every day. I wonder if even routine can be an attempt to minimize anxiety because with routine we've convinced ourselves that we're in control. Like most Fridays on our day off, we make a trip to Costco. First we stop and get gas. Then we head to the same aisle that we always park in and look for the same parking spot that we always park in or at least one of two or three. And it gets a little frustrated when people are parked in our parking spot. They should know that that's where we park. It throws me completely off the game. Once inside, we go and say hi to our son, Jared. He kind of runs the cell phone uh, part of Costco. If you're ever in there, say hi to Jared. Your dad said to say hi to you. Then we had to get things on our list. Monster drinks, Premier Protein drink, Propel, Starbucks decaf coffee pods. We drink a lot. <laughs> Let me rephrase that, yeah. We drink a lot of those kinds of things too. I, I should probably, yeah. After we pick up all the drinks and all the other things on our list, we proceed to buy the things we didn't even know we need. But somehow Costco knew that we needed them, right? 
Then we haul the stuff out to the Jeep because we always take the Jeep to Costco and we load all the things that we thought we needed and the things we did need. And some of you are thinking, how sad. What a sad life. But don't feel sorry for us because I see some of you at Costco every Friday (laughs) doing the same thing, buying all the stuff you didn't know you needed. Routines are safe. Because we control the narrative. At least we think we do. And the truth is while routines may help mask or even, or even kind of provide safety and minimize the suffocation, they can't give us peace. Because as soon as we believe that we're in control, our anxiety reminds us we are not. So we have attitude and peace. We have anxiety and peace. And then we have prayer and peace. The second part of verse six and verse seven. But in every situation he goes on, he says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Simply to say, he says, pray about everything. The phrase, but in everything, is not by accident. It's not a space filler. It's not for a word count purpose. It's there intentionally. Take note that it doesn't say pray when you have time to pray about the big things in life. Pray about everything. There are never times in our lives when we are faced with too much that we can't approach God. Be aware when your worry has surpassed your worship. God invites us to come to him. No matter what we are faced with, or no matter what it is that we are going through, whether it's a decision or an unknown future or uh, that's causing you anxiety and worry, God says, come to me. He says that in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, Jesus says. A part of prayer is this transfer of burdens from our shoulders to his. It's a releasing, it's this letting go. That is when the peace of Christ will flood your heart when you're able to trust God, when you're able to let go so that he can have whatever is making you anxious, whatever it is that is suffocating you. Can I just encourage you? Whenever you even begin to sense that uneasy feeling of worry or anxiousness or fear or fret, stop whatever you're doing. This should be the first thing you do and go to God. Just stop. What did verse seven say? The peace of God will transcend all understanding. It will guard your heart and mind. The peace of God that transcends. It is not limited in its ability to satisfy is what's behind that. It is peace that will satisfy the most troublesome heart. Colossians 3.15 echoes this promise. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The last thing I wanna talk about in verse eight and nine is control and peace. And he goes on, he says this. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So he moves from the heart and now he's moving to the mind. Romans 8, 6 again affirms this and echoes it and it says this, Paul writes, the mind governed by the flesh is death. but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. What are you allowing to govern your mind? He says, think about these, whatever is true. The word true had the idea of that which is valid, which is reliable, which is honest. Dr. Walter Cavert reported a survey on worry. I found this fascinating that indicated that only 8% of the things that people worried about were legitimate matters of concern. The other 92% were either imaginary, never happened, or involved matters over which the people had no control anyway. 8% worry and anxiety, like many other issues in our lives, is the result of lies. He says, we're only to think about the things that are true. Easier said than done, right? when you're being bombarded by the evil one. And that little foothold or that little stronghold or that little entryway into your mind and the evil one gets in there and, and that lie just starts bouncing around. Lies about yourself, lies about God, others, your circumstances. And, and you begin to sense that suffocating sensation. And Paul begins by saying, whatever is true, get your mind set on the things that are true. Truth is a standard because truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. Truth is a person. Please don't ever forget that. Particularly in our society today, don't forget that. It's a person. Truth is embodied in an individual, Jesus. If you want to know the truth for anything in this ever-shifting culture that we live, always start with what you know to be true, Jesus and the Word of God. Truth is not determined by what culture says or by what we feel. It is embodied in a person. It cannot be defined outside of Christ. Christ cannot be defined by what we say is true. Paul says, think about what you know to be true and run from the lies of the evil one. Whatever is noble, allow your mind to be fixated on what is worthy of respect. Whatever is right, almost two-thirds of adults, two-thirds of adults think that ethics vary from one situation to another or that there is no unchanging ethical standard of right and wrong. Two-thirds. To think about what is right, we, we must commit to a standard by which we can determine what is right and what is wrong. And that standard, again, is scripture and the character and the nature of God. That is how peace floods our mind. We fixate on what is right, what is pure. We're bombarded with impurity. To think pure thoughts is to think about things that, that have not been contaminated by this world or that are without blemish. Paul says, think about those things. 
Peaceful thinking is the opposite of impure thinking. Whatever is lovely, the word means those things that promote peace and not conflict. In other words, don't entertain those things that are going to make you live in conflict because conflict promotes an anxious mind. Whatever is admirable, the word means those things that are commendable. Think about the things that are positive, the things that are constructive, not things that are negative or, or, or destructive. So Paul keeps challenging us to get our minds fixed on these things because friends, if you want peace, this is where it comes from. It's the transformation of the mind and the heart through Christ. And then it ends with excellent or praiseworthy. A healthy and godly thought pattern will develop into a lifestyle that is honoring and pleasing to God. If we want God's peace to flood and consume our lives, we need to stop allowing our circumstances to affect our attitude. We need to present our request to God in prayer, and we need to allow God's peace to guard our hearts and our minds. Attitude, heart, and mind are the three keys to God's peace. Let me leave you with this one thing, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this morning. And Lord, I know as I look out, um, I know the stories of many and there's many stories I don't know. And God, probably all of us in this room have experienced that overwhelming feeling, um, that suffocating experience. And Lord, you've taught us from your word this morning, and Jehovah Shalom, that you are a God of peace and that you have that for us. You want that for us. You desire that for us. And your word teaches us that it comes through attitude, it comes through our heart, it comes through our mind. And God, I I pray that even just one little itty bitty step that we can take is the next time, and maybe there's somebody here right now that's experiencing that that suffocating feeling, but, but the next time that it happens, that we even have this tinge or inkling that that's the direction our mind is going or this overwhelming feeling, that we would just say, no, pause and that we would direct all of our attention instantly to you. And we would just find ourselves in your presence. Jehovah Shalom. Maybe Lord, as we worship and as we conclude our service through this next worship song, that some in this room would experience that, maybe even for the first time. In your name we pray, amen.